Chapter Five of Babbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Five. Babbitt's preparations for leaving the office to its feeble self during the hour and a half of his lunch period were somewhat less elaborate than the plans for a general European war. He fretted to Miss McGowan, "What time are you going to lunch?" Well. Make sure Miss Bannigan is in, then. Explain to her that if Weinfeldt calls up, she's to tell him I'm already having this title traced. And, oh, by the way, remind me tomorrow to have Penniman trace it. Now, if anybody comes in looking for a cheap house, remember, we got to shove that Banger Road place off onto somebody. If you need me, I'll be at the athletic club, and, uh, uh, I'll be back by two. He dusted the scar ashes off his vest. He placed a difficult, unanswered letter on the pile of unfinished work that he might not fail to attend to it that afternoon. For three noons now he had placed that same letter on the unfinished pile. He scrawled on a sheet of yellow backing paper the memorandum, See about apartment HDRS, which gave him an agreeable feeling of having already seen about the apartment house doors. He discovered that he was smoking another cigar. He threw it away, protesting. Darn it! Thought you'd quit the damn smoking. He courageously returned the scar box to the correspondence file, locked it up, hid the key in a more difficult place, and raged. Ought to take care of it myself. Need more exercise. Walk to the club every single noon. Just what I'll do. Cut out this motoring all the time. The resolution made him feel exemplatory. Immediately after he decided that this noon it was too late to walk. It took but little more time to start his car and edge it into the traffic than it would have taken to walk the three-and-a-half blocks to the club. Two. As he drove, he glanced with fondness of familiarity at the buildings. A stranger suddenly dropped into the business center of Zenith. Could not have told whether he was in a city of Oregon or Georgia, Ohio or Maine, Oklahoma or Manitoba, but to Babbitt, Every inch was individual and stirring. As always, he noted that the California building across the way was three stories lower, therefore three stories less beautiful than his own Reeves building. As always, when he passed the Parthenon shoeshine parlor, a one-story hut which, beside the granite and red-brick ponderness of the old California building, resembled a bathhouse under a cliff, he commented, Gosh, ought to get my shoeshine this afternoon. Keep forgetting it. At the Simplex office furniture shop, the National Cash Register Agency, he yearned for a dictaphone, for a typewriter, which would add and multiply as a poet yearns for quattros for a physician for radium. At the newbie menswear shop, he took his left hand off the steering wheel to touch his scarf and thought well of himself as one who bought expensive ties and could pay cash for him too. By golly! And at the United Cigar Store, with its crimson and gold alertness, he reflected, "'Wonder if I need some cigars. Idiot. Plum forgot. Gonna cut down my fool smoking.' He looked at his bank, the Miners and Drovers National, and considered how clever and solid he was to bank with so marbled an establishment. His high moment came in the clash of traffic, when he was halted at the corner beneath the lofty Second National Tower. His car was banked with four others in a line of steel restless as cavalry, while the cross-town traffic, limousines and enormous moving vans and insistent motorcycles poured by, 
On the further corner, pneumatic riveters rang on the sun-plated skeleton of a new building, and out of this tornado flashed the inspiration of a familiar face, and a fellow booster shouted, "'Hey! How are you, Georgie?' Babbitt waved in neighborly affection, and slid on with the traffic as the policeman lifted his hand. He noted how quickly his car picked up. He felt superior and powerful, like a shuttle of polished steel darting in a vast machine. As always, he ignored the next two blocks, decayed blocks not yet reclaimed, from the grime and shabbiness of the zenith of 1885. While he was passing the five-and-ten-cent store, the Dakota Lodging House, Concordia Hall with its lodge rooms, and the offices of fortune-tellers and chiropractors, he thought of how much money he made, and he boasted a little and worried a little, and did old familiar sums. Four hundred fifty plunks this morning from the land deal, but taxes due. Let's see. Ought to pull out eight thousand net this year and save fifteen hundred of that. No, not if I put up the garage and let's see, six hundred and forty clear last month and twelve times six forty makes makes let's see, six times twelve is seventy two hundred and all rats anyway. I'll make eight thousand. Gee, now, that's not so bad. Mighty good fellows pulling down $8,000 a year. 8,000 good hard iron dollars. Bet there isn't more than 5% of the people in the whole United States that make more than Uncle George does, by golly. Right up at the top of the heap. But my expenses are family wasting gasoline, always dressed like millionaires, and sending that 80 a month to mother and all these stenographers and salesmen gouging me for every cent they can get. The effect of his scientific budget planning was that he felt at once triumphantly wealthy and perilously poor, and in the midst of these dissertations he stopped his car, rushed into a small news and miscellany shop, and bought the electric cigar lighter which he had coveted for a week. He dodged his conscience by being jerky and noisy, and by shouting at the clerk, "'Guess this'll pretty near pay for itself in matches, eh?' It was a pretty thing, a nickeled cylinder, with an almost silvery socket, to be attached to the dashboard of his car. It was not only, as a placard on the counter observed, a dainty little refinement lending the last touch of class to the gentleman's auto, but a priceless time-saver. By freeing him from halting the car to light a match, it would, in a month, or too easily save ten minutes. As he drove on, he glanced at it. Pretty nice. Always wanted one, he said wistfully. The one thing a smoker needs, too. Then he remembered that he had given up smoking. Darn it! mourned. Oh, well, I guess I'll hit a cigar once in a while and be a great convenience for other folks. Might make just a difference in getting chummy with some fellow that would put over sailing. Certainly looks nice there. Certainly a mighty clever little jigger. Gives the last touch of refinement and class, and I'm, by golly, I guess I can afford it if I want to. Not going to be the only member of this family. Never has a single doggone luxury. Thus, laden with treasure, after three and a half blocks of romantic adventure, he drove up to the club. 3. The Zenith Athletic Club is not athletic, and it isn't exactly a club but it is zenith in perfection. It has an active and smoke-misted billiard-room. It is represented by baseball and football teams, and in the pool and gymnasium a tenth of the members sporadically try to reduce. 
but most of its three thousand members use it as a cafe in which to lunch play cards tell stories meet customers and entertain out-of-town uncles at dinner it is the largest club in the city and its chief hatred is the conservative union club which all sound members of the athletic call a rotten snobbish dull expensive old hole not one good mixer in the place you couldn't hire me to join statistics show that no member of the athletic has ever refused election to the union and of those who are elected sixty-seven per cent resign from the athletic and thereafter heard to say in a drowsy sanctity of the union lounge oh the athletic would be a pretty good hotel if it were more exclusive the athletic club building is nine stories high yellow brick with glossy roof garden above the portico of huge limestone columns below the lobby with its thick pillars of porous kinning stone its pointed vaulting and a brown glazed tile floor like well-baked bread-crust is a combination of cathedral crypt and ratskeller the members rush into the lobby as though they were shopping and had much time for it thus did babbitt enter and to the group standing by the cigar counter he whooped how's the boys how's the boys well well fine day jovially they whooped back virgil gunch the coal dealer sidney finkelstein the ladies ready to wear buyer for parcher and stern's department store and professor joseph k pumpery owner of the right way business college and instructor in public speaking business english scenario writing and commercial law though babbitt admired the savant and appreciated sidney finkelstein as a mighty smart buyer and a good liberal spender it was to virgil gunch that he turned with enthusiasm Mr. Gunch was the president of the Boosters Club, a weekly lunch club, local chapter of a national organization which promoted sound business and friendliness among regular fellows. He was also no less an official than esteemed leading knight in the benevolent and protective order of the Elks, and it was rumored that at the next election he would be a candidate for exalted ruler. He was a jolly man, given to oratory and to chumminess with the arts. He called on the famous actors and vaudeville artists when they came to town, gave them cigars, addressed them by their first names, and sometimes succeeded in bringing them to the Booster Club lunches to give the boys a free entertainment. He was a large man with hair and bros, and he knew the latest jokes, but he played poker close to the chest. It was at his party that Babbitt had sucked in the virus of today's restlessness. Grunt shouted, How was the old Bolshevsky? How do you feel the morning after the night before? Oh, boy, some head. That was a regular party you threw, Verge. Hope you haven't forgotten I took that last cute little jackpot, Babbitt bellowed. He was three feet from Grunch. That's all right now. What I'll hand you next time, Georgie. Say, did you notice in the paper the way the New York Assembly stood up to the Reds? You bet I did. That was fine. Nice day today. Yes, it's one mighty fine spring day, but night's still cold. Yeah, you're right, they are. Had to have a couple blankets last night on the sleeping porch. Say, Sid Babbitt turned to Finkelstein, the buyer, got something I want to ask you about. I went out and bought me an electric cigar lighter for the car this noon, and... Good hunch, said Finkelstein. While even the learned professor, Pumperoy, a bulbous man with a pepper-and-salt cutaway and a pipe-organ voice, commented, That's a dandy accessory. Cigarette lighter gives tone to the dashboard. 
Yep, finally decided I'd buy me one. Got the best on the market. Clerk said it was. Paid five bucks for it. Just wondering if it got stuck. What they charge for them at your store, Sid? Finkelstein asserted that five dollars was not too great a sum, not for a really high-class lighter which was suitably nickeled and provided with connections of the very best quality. I always say, and believe me, I based it on a pretty fairly extensive mercantile experience, the best is the cheapest in the long run. Of course, if a fellow wants to be a Jew about it, he could get cheap junk, but in the long run, the cheapest thing is the best you can get. Now you take this the other day, I got a new top from old boat and some of poultry, and I paid out a hundred and twenty-six fifty. And, of course, a lot of fellows would say that was too much. Lord, if the old folks, they live in one of these hick towns upstate, and they simply can't get on to the way a city fellow's mind works. And then, of course, they're Jews, and they'd lie down and die if they knew that Sid added up a hundred and twenty-six bones. But I don't figure I was stuck. George, not a bit. Machine looks brand new. Not that it's so darned old, of course. It's had less than three years. But I give it a hard service. Never drive less than a hundred miles on Sunday. Uh, oh, I uh, really don't think you got stuck, George. In the long run, the best is, you might say, it's unquestionably the cheapest. That's right, said Virgil Gunch. That's the way I look at it. If a fellow is keyed up to what you might call intensive living, the way you get it here in Zenith, all the hustle and mental activity that's going on with a bunch of live wires like the boosters and here at the ZAC, why, he's got to save his nerves by having the best. Babbitt nodded his head at every fifth word in the roaring rhythm and the conclusion in Gunch's renowned humorous vein. He was enchanted. Still at that, George. Don't know as you can afford it. I've heard your business is kind of under the eye of the government since you stole the tail of uh, Ethorn Park and sold it. Oh, you're a great little josher, Verge. But when it comes to kidding, how about this report that you stole the black marble steps off the post office and sold them for a high-grade coal? In delight, Babbitt patted Gunch's back and stroked his arm. That's all right. But what I want to know is who's the real estate shark that bought that coal for his apartment houses? I guess that'll hold you for a while, Georgie, said Finkelstein. I'll tell you, though, boys, what I did here. George's missus went into the gentswear department at Parcher's to buy him some colors, and before she could give his neck size, the clerk slips her some thirteens. How'd you know the size? says Miss Babbitt, and the clerk says, Men that let their wives buy collars for em always wear thirteen, madam. How's that? That's pretty good, eh? How's that, eh? I guess that'll about fix you, George. Aye, aye. Babbitt sought for amiable insults and answer. He stopped, stared at the door. Paul Riesling was coming in. Babbitt cried, See you later, boys, and hastened across the lobby. He was, just then, neither the sulky child of the sleeping porch, the domestic tyrant of the breakfast table, the crafty money-changer of the lighty purry conference nor the blaring good fellow, the josher and regular guy of the athletic club. He was an older brother to Paul Reitling, swift to defend him, admiring him with proud incredulous love, passing the love of women. Paul and he shook hands solemnly. They smiled as shyly as though they had been parted three years, not three days, and they said, How's the old horse thief? All right, I guess. How are you, you poor shrimp? I'm first-rate, you second-hand hunk of cheese. Reassured thus of their fondness, Babbitt grunted, 
You're a fine guy, you are. Ten minutes late. Rising clapped. Well, you're lucky to have a chance to have lunch with a gentleman. They grinned and went into the Norwegian watchroom, where a line of men bent over the bowls insert along a prestigious slab of marble, as in religious prostration before their own images, in the massy mirror. Voices, thick, satisfied, authoritative, hurled along the marble walls, bounded from the ceiling of lavender-colored milky tiles, while the lords of the city, the barons of insurance and law and fertilizers and motor-tires, laid down the law for Zenith, announced that the day was warm, indeed, indisputably, of spring, that wages were too high and the interest on mortgages too low, that Babe Ruth, the eminent player of baseball, was a noble man, and that those two nuts at the Climax Vaudeville Theatre this week certainly are a slick pair of actors. Babbitt, though ordinarily his voice was the surest and most episcopal of all, was silent, in the presence of the slight, dark reticence of Paul Risling. He was awkward. He desired to be quiet and firm and deft. The entrance lobby of the athletic club was Gothic. The washroom, Roman Imperial, the lounge, Spanish Mission, and the reading-room in Chinese Chippendale, but the gem of the club was the dining-room, the masterpiece of Ferdinand Reitman, Zenith's busiest architect. It was lofty and half-timbered, with Tudor-leaded casements, an aureole, a somewhat musicianless musician's gallery, and tapestries believed to illustrate the granting of Magna Carta. The open beams had been hand-assed by Jake Offit's car bodyworks. The hinge were of hand-wrought iron, the waistcoat studded with handmade wooden pegs, and at one end of the room was a heraldic and hooded stone fireplace, which the club's advertising pamphlet asserted not only to be larger than any of the fireplaces in European castles, but of a draught incomparably more scientific. It was also much cleaner, as no fire had ever been built in it. Half of the tables were mammoth slabs, which seated twenty or thirty men. Babbitt usually sat at the one near the door, with a group including Gunch, Finkelstein, Professor Pumphrey, Howard Littlefield, his neighbor T. Carmaldi Fink, the poet and advertising agent, and Orville Jones, whose laundry was in many ways the best in Zenith. They composed a club within the club. Then merrily called themselves the Roughnecks. Today, as he passed their table, the Roughnecks greeted him. Come on, sit down. You and Paul too proud to feed with poor folks? Afraid somebody might stick you for a bottle of Bevo? George strikes me as you swells are getting awful darn exclusive. He thundered. You bet. We can't afford to have our reps ruined by being seen with you tightwads and guided Paul to one of the small tables beneath the musicians' gallery. He felt guilty. At the Zenith Athletic Club, privacy was very bad form. But he wanted Paul to himself. That morning he had advocated lighter lunches, and now he ordered nothing but English mutton-chop, radishes, peas, deep-dish apple pie, a bit of cheese, and a pot of coffee with cream, adding, as he did invariably, "'And, oh, uh, you might give me an order of French fried potatoes.' When the chop came, he vigorously peppered it and salted it. He always peppered and salted his meat, and vigorously before tasting it. Paul and he took up the spring-like quality of the spring, the virtues of the electric cigar lighter, and the action of the New York State Assembly, 
It was not until Babbitt was thick and disconsolate with mutton grease that he flung out, I wound up a nice little deal with Conrad Lighty this morning and uh, put five hundred good plunks in my pocket. Pretty nice, pretty nice. And yet, I don't know what's the matter with me today. Maybe it's an attack of spring fever or staying up too late at Verge Gunches. Or maybe it's just a winter's work piling up. But I felt kind of down in the mouth all day long. Of course, I wouldn't beef about it to fellows at the roughnecks table there. But you? you ever feel that way, Paul? Kind of comes over me here. I've pretty much done all the things I ought to do. Support my family. Got a good house. A six-cylinder car. Built up a nice little business. I haven't any vices, especially except smoking. And I'm practically cutting that one out, by the way. And I belong to the church and play enough golf to keep in trim. And I only associate with good, decent fellows. And yet, even so, I don't know that I'm entirely satisfied. It was drawled out, broken by shouts from the neighboring tables, by mechanical love-making to the waitresses, by strenuous grunts as the coffee filled him with dizziness and indigestion. He was apologetic and doubtful, and it was Paul, with his thin voice, who pierced the fog. "'Good Lord, George! You don't suppose it's any novelty to me to find that we hustlers, that think we're so all-fired successful, aren't getting much out of it? You look as if you expected me to report you as sedacious. You know what my own life's been. I know, old man. I ought to have been a fiddler, and I'm a peddler of tar roofing. And Zelia, oh, I don't want to squeal, but you know as well as I do about how inspiring a wife she is. Typical instance last evening. We went to the movies. There was a big crowd waiting in the lobby, us at the tail end. She began to push right through it with her, Sir, how dare you, manner? Honestly, sometimes when I look at her and see how she's always so made up and stinking of perfume and looking for trouble and kind of always yelping, I'll tell you, I'm a lady, damn you. Why, I want to kill her. Well, she keeps elbowing through the crowd, me after her, feeling good and ashamed till she's almost up at the velvet rope and ready to be next let in. But there was a little squirt of a man there, probably been waiting half an hour. I kind of admired the little cuss. And he turns to Zilly and says, perfectly polite, Madam, why are you trying to push past me? And she simply, God, I was so ashamed. She rips out at him, You're no gentleman. And she drags me into it and hollers, Paul, this person insulted me. And the poor skate, he got ready to fight. I made out I hadn't hurt him. Sure, same as you wouldn't hear a boiler factory, and tried to look away. I can tell you exactly how every tile looks in the ceiling of that lobby. There's one with brown spots on it, like the face of the devil. And all the time the people there, they were packed in like sardines. They kept making remarks about us. And Zilly went right on talking about the little chap, and screeching that folks like him oughtn't to be admitted in a place that's supposed to be for ladies and gentlemen. And, Paul, will you kindly call the manager so I can report this dirty rat? And, well, maybe I wasn't glad when I could sneak inside and hide in the dark. After twenty-four years of that kind of thing, you don't expect me to fall down and foam at the mouth when you hint that this sweet, clean, respectable moral life isn't all it's cracked up to be, do you? I can't even talk about it, except you, because anybody else would think I was yellow. Maybe I am. Don't carry longer. Gosh, you've had to stand a lot of whining for me, first and last, Georgie. 
rats now paul you'll never really what you could call wind sometimes i'm always blowing on myra and the kids about that whale of a realtor i am and yet sometimes i get a sneaking idea i'm not such a pierpoint morgan as i let on to be but if i ever do help by jawing you along old paul insky i guess maybe st pete may let me in after all yeah you're a blowhard georgie you cheerful cutthroat but you've certainly kept me going well why don't you divorce celia why don't i if i only could if she'd just give me the chance you couldn't hire her to divorce me no nor desert me she's too fond of her three squares and a few pounds of nut-centered chocolates in between if she'd only be what they call unfaithful to me george i don't want to be too much of a stinker back in college i'd a thought a man who could say that ought to be shot at sunrise but honestly i'd be tickled to death if she'd really go making love with somebody fat chance of course she'll flirt with anything but you know how she holds her hands and laughs that laugh that horrible brassy laugh the way she yaps you naughty man you better be careful or my big husband will be after you and the guy looking me over and thinking why you cute little thing you run away now or i'll spank you and she'll let him go just far enough so she gets some excitement out of it and then she'll begin to do the injured innocent and have a beautiful time wailing i don't think you were that kind of a person they talk about the demi-virgies of stories did what but the wise hard consorted at old married women like zelia are worse than any bobbed hair girl that ever went boldly out in this here storm of life and kept her umbrella slid up her sleeve but rats you know what zilla is how she nags 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 how she wants everything i can buy her and a lot that i can't and how absolutely unreasonable she is and what i get sore and try to have it out on her what she plays the perfect lady so well that even i get fooled and get all tangled up in a lot of why did you says and i didn't means i'll tell you georgie you know my tastes are pretty fairly simple in a matter of food at least of course as you're always complaining i do like decent cigars not those florida cabagos you're smoking that's all right now that's good too for by the way paul did i tell you i decided to practically cut out smoke yes you at the same time if i can't get what i like why i can do without it i don't mind sitting down to burnt steak with canned peaches and store cake for a thrilling little dessert afterwards but i do draw the line at having to sympathize with zilia because she's so rotten bad-tempered that the cook has quit and she's been so busy sitting in a dirty lace negligee all afternoon reading about some brave manly western hero that she hasn't had time to do any cooking you're always talking about morals meaning monogamy i suppose you've been the rock of ages to me all right but you're essentially a simp you what do you get that simp little man let me tell you love to look earnest and inform the world that it's the duty of responsible businessmen to be strictly moral as an example to the community in fact you're so earnest about morality old george that i hate to think how essentially immoral you must be underneath all right you can wait 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 now what's talk about morals all you want to old thing but believe me 
if it hadn't been for you and an occasional evening playing of the violin to Terrell O'Farrell's Ocello, and three or four darling girls that let me forget this beastly joke they call respectable life, I'd have killed myself years ago. In business, the roofing business, roofs for cowsheds. Oh, I don't mean I haven't had a lot of fun out in the game, out of putting it over on the labor unions and seeing the big check coming in and the business increasing. But what's the use of it? You know my business isn't distributing roofing. It's principally keeping my competitors from distributing roofing. Same as with you. All we do is cut each other's throats and make the public pay for it. Uh, look here now, Paul. You're pretty darn near talking socialism. Oh, yes, of course. I don't really exactly mean that. Suppose, of course, competition brings out the best, survival of the fittest. But, but I mean, take all those fellows we know, the kind right here in the club, now that seem to be perfectly content with their home life and their businesses, and that boosts Zenith and the Chamber of Commerce and holler for a million population. I bet if you could cut into their heads, you'd find that one-third of them are sure enough satisfied with their wives and kids and friends in their offices, and one-third feel kind of restless, but won't admit it, and one-third are miserable, and know it. They hate the whole peppy, boosting, go-ahead game, and they're bored with their wives, and think their families are fools. At least when they come to forty or forty-five, they're bored, and they hate business, and they go. Why do you suppose there's so many mysterious suicides? Why do you suppose so many substantial citizens jump right into the war? Think it was all patriotism? Babbitt snorted. What do you expect? Think we were sent into the world to have a soft time, and what is it? Float on flowery beds of ease? Think man was made just to be happy? Why not? though I've never discovered anybody that knew what the deuce man really was made for. Well, we know, not just in the Bible alone, but it stands to reason, a man who doesn't buckle down and do his duty, even if it does bore him, sometimes is nothing but a, well, he's simply a weakling. Mollycoddle, in fact. And what do you advocate? Come down to cases. If a man is bored by his wife, do you seriously mean he has a right to chuck her and take a sneak or even kill himself? Good Lord, I don't know what's right man has, and I don't know the solutions of boredom. If I did, I'd be the one philosopher that had the cure for living. But I do know that about ten times as many people find their lives dull and unnecessarily dull as ever admitted. And I do believe that if we busted out and admitted it, sometimes instead of being nice and patient and loyal for sixty years, and then nice and patient and dead for the rest of eternity, why, maybe, possibly, we might make life more fun. They drifted into a maze of speculation. Babbitt was elephantishly uneasy. Paul was bold, but not quite sure about what he was being bold. Now and then Babbitt suddenly agreed with Paul in an admission which contradicted all his defense of duty and Christian patience, and at each admission he had a curious, reckless joy. He said at last, Look here, old Paul, you do a lot of talking about kicking things in the face, but you never kick. Why don't you? Nobody does. Habit too strong. But, Georgie, I've been thinking of one mild bat Oh, don't worry, old pillar of monogamy. It's highly proper. It seems to be settled now, isn't it? 
though of course zilia keeps rooting for a nice expensive vacation in new york and atlantic city with the bright lights and the bootleg cocktails and a bunch of lounge lizards to dance with but the babbitts and the rieslings are sure enough going to lake sunasquam aren't we why couldn't you and i make some excuse say business in new york and get up to maine four or five days before they do and just loaf by ourselves and smoke and cuss and be natural great great idea babbitt admired not for fourteen years had he taken a holiday without his wife and neither of them quite believed they could commit this audacity many members of the athletic club did go camping without their wives but they were officially dedicated to fishing and hunting whereas the sacred and unchangeable sports of babbitt and paul reisling were golfing motoring and bridge for either the fishermen or the golfers to have changed their habits would have been an infraction of their self-imposed discipline which would have shocked all right-thinking and regularized citizens babbitt blustered why don't we just put our foot down and say we're going ahead of you and that's all there is to it nothing criminal and simply say to zelia don't say anything to zelia simply why georgie she's almost as much of a moralist as you are and if i told her the truth she'd believe we were going to meet some dames in new york and even myra she never nags you the way zelia does but she'd worry she'd say don't you want me to go to maine with you i shouldn't dream of going unless you wanted me and you'd give in to save her feelings oh the devil let's have a shot at duck pins during the game of duck pins a juvenile form of bowling paul was silent as they came down the steps of the club not more than half an hour after the time at which babbitt had sternly told miss mcgowan he would be back paul sighed look here old man oughtn't to talked about zilly the way i did rats old man lifts off steam oh i know after spending all noon sneering at the conventional stuff i'm conventional enough to be ashamed of saving my life by busting out with my fool troubles oh paul your nerves are kind of on the bum i'm going to take you away i'm going to rig this thing i'm going to have an important deal in new york and and sure of course i'll need you to advise me on the roof of the building and the old deal will fall through and there'll be nothing for us but to go on ahead to maine i uh paul when it comes right down to it i don't care whether you bust loose or not i do like having a rep for being one of the bunch but if you ever need me i'd chuck it and come out for you every time not of course but what your course i don't mean you'd ever do anything that would put uh that would be put a decent position on the fritz but so i mean i'm kind of a clumsy old codger and i need your fine eilishian hand we oh hell i can't stand here gassing all day on the job so long don't take any wooden nickels polybits see you soon so long end of chapter five